in the book of Matthew, chapter 27. But before, as you go there, just put something to mark it. Because I want to say something about uh, the resurrection. And um, if you go to Romans chapter 4. This week I was uh, looking at the uh, the different songs and hymns that are sang around Easter, and uh, and found a lot of them lacking. And I think uh, I don't know if I found any of them that weren't lacking in this point that I'm going to look at here. Uh, what they say is true, but they don't really get to the point of the resurrection. If you look in verse 25 of Romans chapter 4, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, Who was delivered for our offenses, that is, he was delivered to judgment for your and mine sin. And was raised again for our justification. The word for is a very important word to understand. And it can mean to obtain. He rose to obtain our justification, or it can mean because of. A prisoner is sent to prison for robbery because of robbery. They don't go to prison to attain robbery or to commit robbery. And sometimes there's kind of a mystical thinking about what the resurrection did and that to believe in the resurrection uh, helps us to better be saved, I guess. But when it says here in this passage, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification, he was raised again uh, because of our justification. Now, one of the things you're going to have to keep in mind, this is a big rabbit trail today. One of the things you're going to have to keep in mind is that justification is not an act that's done to us. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. That's, that's regeneration. But justification is not something that's been done to us. But justification is a declaration. We're declared to be just. And so what this verse is saying is because Christ died for our offenses and he rose again for our justification, he was raised again for our justification, raised again because of our justification. That is, when he died for our sins and we put our faith and trust in his work on the cross, God has declared us justified, and the fact that his payment for sin was adequate, he rose again. And so, 
Though, though up from the grave he rose with a mighty triumph over his foes, it's not that the resurrection is a conflict between Satan and God or good and evil, but resurrection is a testimony that God the Father received the payment of God the Son. And as I put my faith in that payment, God says, he, he, you are justified, I declare you just, and because of that, I also signify that that is valid because Christ rose from the grave. It's like when we go to, someone goes to a, a prison or he's fined a fine, He's not going to be released from prison until he pays his, uh, he pays his, uh, what's required for whatever was pronounced by the judge, and then he's released. The sin of the world was paid for, and Christ rose again because of that. And that's why when we get over to uh, further in Romans, if thou wilt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead. It's not that just to believe in the historical fact that he rose from the dead, but it's to believe that when he rose from the dead, that that signifies that his payment was adequate. And so, uh, I, uh, I'm still looking for a song of resurrection that I really uh, like. <laughs> mm. Okay, I'm grumpy today about that. We'll go on. Matthew chapter 27. We're looking at the seven sayings of Christ from the cross. And today we're going to look <coughs> at the fourth saying, beginning in chapter 27. <coughs> excuse me. And verse 27. 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in the right hand. And they bowed the knee before him, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they saw, and as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were coming to the place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, parting his garments, casting lots, and it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the prophets. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and they set up over his head an accusation written, this is the king of the Jews. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And when they passed by him, by, when they passed by, reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou hast destroyed us the temple and built it in three days. Save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. 
Likewise, and the chief priests mocking him, and the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down forgive from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him, for he says, I am the Son of God. And if these also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. And now from the sixth hour, the Jewish day began at six in the morning, the Roman time, our time. And so the sixth hour, from six o'clock in the morning, six hours, it would have been 12 noon when the sun is at its zenith. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so we find the fourth saying from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As we come to this uh, saying, we enter into holy ground. It would seem far more appropriate to bow our heads in silence and worship than to elaborate on this. One day, one of the Reformation men, Martin Luther, was studying and he sat at his desk thinking the time for taking food passed. His wife was wondering what was going on. And finally he rose from his desk and he said, uh, God, forsaken of God, who can understand it? And there is a lot here that we may not comprehend, but there is some things that we can comprehend. And so we've read quite a bit of portion here, but let me go back and set this setting again. Prior to what we read, early in the morning, they capture Jesus, they take him by force, and uh, take him to the high priest's house at night, and they're going to have a trial at night, <laughs> which is totally illegal. There, the Sanhedrin condemn him to die. Yet the Sanhedrin, being a Jewish court, did not have the right or the power or the authority to carry out capital punishment. And so they had to take him over to Pilate, the Roman authority. And there, Pilate hears the testimony. 
Twice, Pilate says, I find no fault in him. And the Jews put the pressure on Pilate and said, if you don't deal with him, you're no friend of Caesar. And so Pilate thinks, well, what I'll do, I'll have him, I'll have him scourged, and maybe that'll be enough to satisfy them, but it wasn't, and he's going to have to crucify him. And so he's scourged, He's mocked. He's led up Calvary's road and crucified at Golgotha. While hanging there, he first showed concerns for the people of the world. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then we noted his saying to the repentant thief, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then we find him concerned about his mother and he speaks to John and he speaks to his mother and has her taken care of. It grows dark from noon until three. We know that in Old Testament that a lot of times when it was dark God brought darkness upon the world. It was because of judgment. Amos says, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. Speaking of judgment in the day of Amos. When uh, God judged Egypt, he brought darkness upon the land not only defeating and showing that he had control over their false gods, the god Ra was the sun god of Egypt, and God just, you know, pulls his plug for a while. And judgment comes upon Egypt. Matthew relates here that there's darkness. It's interesting there in verse 45 to understand exactly what it's saying. He says, now in the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And that word, all the land, does not refer to a local place, but it has the idea of over all the earth. That this is not an eclipse. And sometimes you'll read accounts that said that there was an eclipse, and, and they thought of that that way. <clears throat> there was a man... Uh, who was a uh, Christian writing from uh, Africa. He said, uh, he said in 215 A.D. After, the, after these events, he recorded the writing of a pagan historian by the name of Thales, who wrote uh, this book in A.D. 52. He said, only 20, which was only 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. Thales wrote that the darkness totally covered the land at the time of the Passover in A.D. 32. Phlegion was a Greek historian, and he uh, wrote uh, about 33 A.D. that there was, a great, uh, the, there was the greatest eclipse of the sun and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day and was, so that the stars appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia and many things were turned 
over in Nicaea. Well, he had only one way to explain it as a great eclipse, but it's not an eclipse. Uh, we've seen eclipses and none of them last for three hours. But what's happening here is not only judgment, but something so personal between God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. I mean, God the Son, not the Holy Spirit. He's there. But God the Father and God the Son, that it's as though God's going to pull the shade on the world as he performs it. And Jesus is going to cry out at the, towards the end of that three hours of darkness. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So the first thing we see here in this account is that these words speak of uh, of, of Christ uh, being a sacrifice. There should be no question of why Christ came to this world. Jesus came to die for sin for the sin of the world. He was not a martyr. His death was not the faulty reasoning of a people who failed to understand who he was and they should have made him king. He wasn't killed by accident. And he wasn't some example for us to live a crucified life. You hear in Matthew, if you go back to chapter 20 and verse 28, you'll see very clear words about Christ dying. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That his, he was going to be a payment, a ransom for those who trusted him. When he approached the time of death, when he was there in the garden, he said, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. He was talking about the hour of death, the hour of the cross, the hour when he would bear the sins of the world. When Hebrews speaks of it, Hebrews says, for Christ has not entered into the holy place made with, uh, with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. 
nor yet that he should offer himself as a high priest entered the, nor yet that he should offer himself often as a high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. And so it says Christ's death was the fulfillment of the of the antitype or the type found in the the offerings. But he says, for then must he also have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so he, uh, he portrayed, he, he was a fulfillment of many of the Old Testament sacrifices. And let me just give you one of those. On the Day of Atonement, there would be two uh, goats that were chosen that was without spot. The priest would would come over one of the goats and he would uh, get it and they would take it into the uh, temple and they would sacrifice that goat and he would the blood would be sprinkled. The other goat and and if you read in Leviticus, you'll see that uh, that. It talks about it being not two sacrifices, but one sacrifice. That the, that the two goats are part of a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. The other goat he would take and he would confess all the sins of Israel that took place that year upon its head. And a man would take that goat and he would take it out into the wilderness as far as he could and turn it loose and watch it. And, and let watch it, it go. And when it finally went over a hill and out of sight, he would return back to Jerusalem and all the people would rejoice that he'd come back without the animal. And what it pictured is not only that, that, that there needed to be a death and a shedding of blood, but there was also a taking away of the sin removed as far as the east is from the west, burning in the deepest sea, was signified by that goat. And so, on this day, Jesus becomes the type of all the, I mean, the antitype of all of the types of the, that were portrayed in the sacrifices. And so, Christ became a sacrifice. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You can picture that in the death of the goat and the one that's sent into the wilderness. Secondly, uh, this, this speaks of the, it, it speaks of the holiness of God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus, here on the cross, receives no comfort. Remember when he began his ministry and he was baptized and then he went out into the wilderness and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was tempted by Satan, and, and uh, the Bible says, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast. And the angels ministered unto him. At that time, God sent 
angelic beings and they ministered to his life, the physical side of our all man and all God, Lord. God took care of him. And just a, just a few hours before he had been in the garden <clears throat> praying and agonizing. And when you read those accounts, Jesus fell down on his knees and then he, he falls down on his face and he prays, if there's any other way to do this, Lord, let's do it that way. And three times that happened. His disciples were not any help to him. And at the end of that, the angels come and they strengthen him. We find that John tells us in the 16th chapter that the disciples were going to leave him and there's some great thoughts of heart and John 16 says behold the hour cometh they is now come that ye shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone and so he's prophesying and telling them you're all going to leave me you're going to leave me alone in his greatest hour or approaching it. And then he said, and yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. And so God's with him in all of those cases, in the temptation in the wilderness, in the garden, and knowing that his disciples are going to flee and leave him. He says that God is with me. But now... He cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father is not there. He's not there to comfort him. I want you to think about that. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yet in this place, Jesus, the God-man, 100% God, 100% man, is forsaken. And that's when that was the dilemma of Martin Luther, God forsaken of God. Well, what's going on here? I think if you'll go back with me to Psalms 22, we'll have the answer to that. In Psalms 22, we have the psalm beginning, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Hmm, familiar words. It's our cry of Christ from the cross. And then he says, why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. Perhaps that's referring to the time there on the cross before the darkness came. 
And in the night seasons, and I'm not silent. And so he asks the question, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And now he's going to answer the question. But thou art holy. Jesus was forsaken of God because he ceased to be holy. He ceased to be sinless in the sense that not that he created sin, but he bore our sin. And God forsakes him because God's eyes are too pure than to look upon sin. Surely he hath bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we destined him sick and smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. <coughs> and he's forsaken. Because um, in that hour, if I would have been there, I would have no help from God either because I'm a sinner. And so the cry from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? has the answer because he's holy, but it has the answer because uh, I'm unholy. And he's standing in my place and he represents me. And so this cry points out that he's a sacrifice. It points out that the holiness of God. It also, this cry gives us a, uh, a glimpse of hell. book of Jude, if you look over there, right before Revelation, in the 13th verse, speaking concerning lost mankind,
It says, raging waves of the sea, turmoil in humanity without God, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, and that's, that was wondered about for many years. The idea was that every star would revolve around something, another star or, or a moon around a planet. planet. But one of these stars, actually they know that there's stars that travel through the universe that are not really affected by an orbit. And then he says, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. That hell is not a place where my buddies and I go and we spend eternity. But hell is a place of torment. And hell is a place of blackness, of darkness. And the Bible says that there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, uh, even the lost man today has the grace of God working in his life in that he allows him to eat and breathe <laughs> and live. But in hell, the cry will be a cry of a forsaken man. You know, I can't imagine it. Today, we have the option when we're so tormented, I'm not saying this is right, but I'm just saying they have the option when we're so tormented just to ch check out. In hell, there's no escape. There's no eject button. There's no retreat. And the loneliness. Everything that a man can rejoice in today has to be a product of God result of God but in hell there's going to be the cry from maybe vocally and maybe within his heart my God my God why hast thou forsaken me and then I think these words not only give us the understanding that there was a sacrifice taking place that God was holy and Jesus said thou art holy in the Psalms 22. We get a glimpse of hell. But also we, how should I put this? We, we see God's love.
until we grasp my God, my God, wife, hast thou forsaken me, we don't really grasp Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Until we really grasp, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We don't appreciate as we should, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. I'm telling you, hell is a perishing place. Should not perish, but have everlasting life. God who is justified and wiping us out. That we've sinned against him. Willfully sinned against him. Knowingly sinned against him. Who would have been justified in sending us all to hell. Wanted to manifest his greatness and his glory. And his wonderfulness. And providing a way for us to be saved. He suffered physically with the whip, with the scourge, with the crown of thorns, with the mockery, with the nails, with the crucifixion. And he could have called legions of angels to rescue him. But he didn't. Why? Because he loves us. He was forsaken of God, who he had been with in all of eternity past. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Experiencing, I don't, I don't know, he, I don't believe that he sinned, but I do believe that he felt something of the weight and the horror and the shame of sin Because my sin has weight and horror and shame. He became associated with uh, not the white lie, not the black lie. Only, but with the shame and horror and the disgust and the the sickness 
of homosexuality. Such were some of you, the Corinthians, but they got saved. The same of all the perverted sexual sins. He can save them. You know, there's lots of things that I would do, uh, but there's some things I won't do. A number of years ago, we had a missionary from to Israel come here, and he went on a trip with us, and his wife, to play a trick on him, uh, as we stopped at a rest area, she told him that the keys dropped down the toilet. One thing I'm not going to do is go rescue somebody's stuff that they dropped down the outhouse hole. I'm not going to do that. But when Jesus died on the cross, he had put up on him a cesspool of sin. You understand why he sweat great drops of blood in the garden? Because he knew what he has taken upon himself. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so we see in those words, the love of God. And so let us rejoice today that it's so. Let us, let us be thankful today because it is so. Let us remember that one of the ways to worship the Lord is not only to sing from our heart, but also to thank him with our lips. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. God, forsaken of God. For me. I don't know about you, but I know that those words were spawned by my sin. That was on a Wednesday, but Sunday's coming. You're dismissed.